Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Oscar-winning director Morgan Neville, known for such films as 20 Feet from Stardom, tells the story of legendary director Orson Welles during his final 15 years of life. No longer the wonder boy of Citizen Kane, Welles in 1970 was an artist in exile looking for his Hollywood comeback with a project called The Other Side of the Wind. For years, Welles toiled on the film, but about an aging film director trying to finish his last great movie. Wells shot the picture guerrilla style in a chaotic circumstances with a devoted crew of young dreamers all struggling with financiers and fate. And that is the premise behind this amazing documentary. Truly, if you love film, you will want to see this movie. Uh, It is called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. And as I alluded to, we're joined today by Academy Award winning director Morgan Neville. Morgan, welcome back to film school. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Great talking to you. As well. Um, Well, the obvious question, I I mean, this is, there's sort of the lore, the legend of the later years of of, uh, Orson Welles. We saw him on Johnny Carson. We saw him doing card tricks. We saw him doing a whole bunch of stuff. And he would occasionally allude to the fact that he was working on a film. Uh, I didn't know the name or much about it, except that it sounded like a man, he, even then he sounded like a man desperate to continue his craft. Uh, tell me a little bit about the origins of this documentary, how you came to it, and what brought you to this project? Well, I loved Orson Welles from the time I was a kid uh, because I grew up in a household full of cineasts. And um, and I watched most of his movies, you know, by the time I was 16. And, um, you know, he was like a towering figure in our house. Um but at that time, you know, in my childhood, um, towards the end of his life, he was seen as kind of a has-been actor. And he hadn't made anything in America for many, many, many years. And when I saw the opportunity to tell this story, it felt like an opportunity to, to rectify this historical wrong. And the problem with Wells' reputation at the end of his life was that he would take acting jobs and not just in movies, but TV and commercials to make money to put them into his own movies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a quote of his was, uh, as an actor, uh, I'm a prostitute, but as a director, I remain virginal. <laughs> and I think, you know, he didn't think acting was a great art form, even though he was incredibly gifted at it. Yeah. But he thought directing was the important work. And so he would do anything as an actor to take that money and put it into his movies. But the problem was the public didn't see the difference. They didn't see his movies getting made, so they didn't know what he was doing. And what you realize is those last 15 years of Orson's life, he wasn't just appearing on Johnny Carson and uh, and wine commercials. You know, he was actually working every day making not just The Other Side of the Wind, but a number of other projects, um, only a couple of which ever saw the light of day. Yeah. And so this is a chance to kind of resuscitate that that part of his, his legend and career. 
for a lot of people who grew up in that era, I I grew up in that time watching him on TV. I had seen Citizen Kane. I had seen Magnificent Ambersons. He inspired me to want to be around film and filmmakers because I loved uh, Citizen Kane so much. And I, and it, in addition to the fact that at the time, my first time I saw it, I don't even know if I knew he directed it. He was such a magnificent actor and such a magnificent presence and such a dynamic person. I was drawn to him and drawn to his work. Later learned out how learned about how great he is and continued to be. But for a lot of people, Touch of Evil may have been the last film that anyone here in the U.S. had, had any real uh, access to. Am I accurate in that? No, that's completely accurate. I mean, the the films he was doing, um, you know, certainly things like Chimes at Midnight, you know, barely got distribution in the States. F for Fake, uh, his kind of brilliant documentary, took years to even come out in the U.S. And so people in America just thought he had stopped making films, but he never stopped. You know, he, he made a number of films, and then he made a number of other films that he never finished. And that's... Yeah. That's part of what this story is about. Um, but to me, he, he really is kind of a heroic character uh, from a creative point of view because he had this incredible belief in what he was doing, and he could care not what the rest of the world thought about its commercial uh, potential or about anything like that. You know, he he didn't care what other people thought. He wanted to make the film he wanted to make. And and dedicated himself one thousand percent to it. For a lot of people, because I alluded to how long it had been since anyone here in the U.S. had any really seen his work, where would you place Orson Welles in film history? How, where, where, where do you where do you see him fitting in? Well, it's interesting because I talk to younger people today, maybe not film students, but just the average person under thirty may not know who Orson is, which yeah. I find incomprehensible because, <laughs> you know, he was the king of film, you know, when as a young film lover. Um, oh. And Orson has kind of largely in, you know, film lover circles, you know, people still talk about Kane being maybe the greatest film ever made, but certainly one of them, even though he made many other great films, and that's a whole other thing. Yeah. But that... Um, he was kind of the embodiment of the American auteur. And, you know, for people who wrote about films, Orson was kind of the person that was America's answer to the kind of European auteurs. And and he very much was an auteur. Um, but I just don't think anybody anybody really understood the kind of the depth of the work he was doing because he was doing auteur work in, you know, genre pictures like touch of evil. One of the kind of redefined film noir and this brilliant film, you know, was a B movie at universal pictures that he elevated to this incredible kind of artistic statement. And when it didn't make a lot of money, he was essentially banished for the second time from Hollywood and he didn't come back for a long time. Well, let's talk about the documentary because, in in many ways, these are they're touched upon in the in this film. They love me when I'm dead. It's a, a Netflix uh, project, and uh, you've been working on with a number of other people. You have um, Alan Cummings coming in to do sort of he's our sort of our host, walks us through a lot of the uh, sort of the the journey that this film took. Uh, uh, the other side of the wind, which is this is what this documentary is about. His last great 
stab at uh, filmmaking. And well, I'll just talk about the documentary itself. What struck you sure. about it when you, as you were putting it together? Well, I mean, first of all, just as a film lover, I couldn't think of anything that was more fun than spending a year going through 100 hours of Orson Welles dailies, you know, because it was just a chance to look at how he worked, and he worked in such a completely unique way as a director. Um, So, you know, essentially he was making this film, just to kind of set the table here, you know, he was making a film called The Other Side of the Wind. It's the film he started when he came back to America in 1970, and this is kind of at the peak of the new Hollywood movement. And he is making a film about a film director that comes back to America trying to finish his last movie and can't because he doesn't have enough money. That is, is exactly what happens in Wells' own story. And you come to realize that virtually everything happening in this movie he was shooting is some reflection of what was happening in his life. Yeah. You know, it's profoundly autobiographical, yeah. even though he hated people talking about those kinds of things because he didn't like to be read into in that way. So he shoots this movie for six years and then edits it for another few years. And then it gets mired into, you know, the mother of all um, kind of legal and rights skirmishes and is locked away in a vault in Paris for 40 years. So, but the story itself is this kind of incredible, ambitious meta story of a film director uh, played by John Huston in, in kind of the Orson Welles role, uh, and his protege, Peter Bogdanovich, um, which is both based on Peter Bogdanovich and starring Peter Bogdanovich <laughs> as Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, so that's just how close and to reality Rich, it gets. And, and Rich Little, <laughs> which is weird. Well, yeah, originally <laughs> cast Rich Little, who um, uh. virtually at the end of filming, uh, disappears, and uh, yeah. they reshoot the whole movie with Peter Bogdanovich, because <laughs> uh, that's what Orson would do. Of course. Um, so it's it's kind of incredible uh, to just go and, and look through all this and, and to see his process, which was, you know, as, as he says in our documentary, his, his job as a director was to preside over accidents. Yes. And to him, you know, where the life came in filmmaking was in 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 accidents and chaos and and the unpredictable so you know whereas most film sets try and make everything run smoothly i think if things ran smoothly on orson's set he found a way to throw a hand grenade into the situation because there's nothing that i think upset him more than a film production that was moving very smoothly (laughs) (laughs) he he is an agent of chaos and and i and i i think when you look at we, we look at uh uh, Citizen Kane. It it looks such it's such a seamless, beautiful production. It is flawless in so many different ways. But I think you're right. As 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 he evolved over time, he was he was labeled as sort of a bad boy. He he, he went against the studios. He did all these kinds of things. He's sort of the original bad boy of cinema for an American, at least from that era, certainly. And and it's it I I love the fact that this your documentary mirrors what it appears that that the other side of the wind in style and and in the way that it looks looks very similar into to the other side of the wind uh, did that that come out right do you, you understand what i was um, yeah. yeah absolutely yeah, that, yeah i mean he was um <laughs> i mean just to break down the other side of the wind yeah. you know it, it's actually two movies right it's 
it's a um, kind of a satire of European cinema, you know, a la Antonioni, which Orson, I think, was trying to show, look, I can do these kind of movies in my sleep. Right. And then it's wrapped with this found footage documentary about the last night of this director's life, the director played by John Huston, who's who's trying to finish this movie. And it's uh, his birthday party, and there are cameras everywhere, and people running around, and crews, and film students. And the idea is that the film is assembled from all these random scraps of, of footage. And so in that way, it's it's an incredibly ambitious movie because it's both probably the first found footage feature ever shot. <laughs> it's true. Um, you know, wrapped around, um, you know, a arch satire of uh, Europe, European cinema of the, the late 60s, early 70s. So, you know, it's wildly ambitious in that way. And I felt like it gave me license to to be ambitious in in telling the story, and and the other thing that's worth noting is that Orson did finish uh, a documentary in the seventies called F for Fake, which was one of the films that made me want to be a documentary filmmaker. I mean, it's this incredible, crazy um, story that Orson tells, and I felt like that the way he made that film allowed me to kind of take some big chances in in um in your work in telling the documentary yeah. uh story and that that was uh liberating and it was a blast i can't wait to see the other side of the wind it, because i i mean i've you see a lot of the footage in they'll love me when i'm dead because it looks like a beautiful mess it, it looks like just one of those you just want it to wash over you and just sort of go with it. Because I think if you get caught up in too much of the linear part of a story, or you'll drive yourself crazy trying to, to go along with it in, in that regard. I think it's, you just let it wash over you. Is that... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's, I, I mean, it's a complex film. I mean, it's why many people have suggested that you should watch my documentary first. Yeah. And then watch the feature because it'll help you understand everything that's happening because it's not the easiest movie to understand. Right. Um, but there are so many kind of fascinating things in that film. Um, and it's very, very different from the documentary, okay. which, okay. which I'm really happy about, that it doesn't, doesn't feel redundant. It, it feels very much complementary. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's just kind of a happy accident that these films ended up kind of working so well together and coming out at the same time. I guess that's what the question I was asking earlier. That's what I was trying to get to. You you, you articulated what I meant to ask you earlier. Yes, exactly. It feels like it's 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 more than a complimentary piece. It It's a primer. It's a sort of a, a decoder of sorts, if you will, watching um, The Love Me When I'm Dead. So I, that's what I'm guessing from what, you, what you're telling me and what I what I deduce from watching the footage in the in in your film. Yeah, well, it's also, you know, for me, a film that was really about this last chapter of Orson's life and what happens to a genius like Orson who is both doing vital work but who's also kind of shadow boxing with his own legend. Yeah. And, um, you know, and Orson had, you know, the mother of all reputations yeah. and, and legends. And, and, you know, it was very difficult for him to move forward knowing that every single thing he was going to do was going to be written about by a, a thousand film critics. Right, um, right. 
all with competing agendas. And I think Orson had been very bruised by that experience over the years. Yeah, he he was definitely a damaged man. And I, one of the few people, one of the few directors that I personally feel like I feel I was in love with with Orson Welles when I saw him. I, I just felt like he was he was a, such a dynamic and interesting man, and and so capable of so many different things. I just loved watching him eat on a talk show or wherever it was, because I just felt I could see the the intelligence and 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 the sort of scoundrel coming through in everything that he he did. Um, I just I loved his work and I loved him and yeah. uh, well it comes across in this film and I I thank you so much for uh, you know for your for your time and today again let of me of course yes thank you again the film is they'll love me when I'm dead it's an, it, uh, premiering on Netflix on November second and it also in, th- in limited theatrical release here in Los Angeles as well as in New York and uh, Morgan Neville congratulations on one hell of a year. Um, won't you be my neighbor? And now um, they'll love me when I'm dead. Thank you so much for being on Film School. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.